Hey guys, you're listening to Metal Matters, a weekly gimme radio podcast. I'm your host, Mike Hill. If you like metal, punk, hardcore, or anything extreme, you've come to the right place. So subscribe and never miss out. It's October, and you know what that means. Halloween is right around the corner. So here at Metal Matters, because we love all things metal and macabre, we're going to do two episodes with Halloween themes. So with this week, Anthony Papalardo joins me and we talk about Samhain, November Coming Fire, and the first Danzig record. What more Halloween can you get than those two records? We're in the Halloween season, so it makes perfect sense that we talk about the darkest of the dark Glenn Danzig. And for this episode, we're going to focus on Sam Haynes' November Coming Fire and how that morphed into the first Danzig LP. And um, are, do you like Halloween? Like you're from the north, uh, you know, sort of that area, right? From Salem, sort of? Yeah, close to there. Um, I liked it more as a kid. And then I got, I think I had to like, I had to push back on it because it became such a cultural thing and being the, that type of person as a kid, like, fuck that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? I hear you, man. I think uh, as a youngster, I really dug Halloween. And then there was that period where you, you reject everything. Yep. And now at this stage of my life, I'm embracing the Halloween season. And there's also some, you know, cultural things with paganism and all that, that uh, connect with Samhain, which is, uh, you know, like the Gaelic festival celebrating the end of harvest. And, um, that ties into, you know, Sam Haynes, November mm-hmm. coming fire and, uh, all that stuff I find very, very sort of fascinating. And, uh, yeah, I, I do. I got more of an appreciation when I moved to New York of just appreciating the spectacle New York becomes. And, uh, I want to shout out a photographer named John Merring who, for the past, I think, 10 Halloweens, he takes photos of people like going home in their costumes or like hungover in them <laughs> on the subway. It's, in, I mean, it's some of the most incredible shit. Yeah. I think they're cataloged on his website, so it's worth a click. So for me personally, uh, Sam Hain is my favorite of the Danzig uh, oeuvre, you know, and it was cool that I had London May on as a guest a few, uh, few weeks ago. That was like that sort of fell into my lap out of nowhere, and I had a lot of fun talking to him about Sam Hain and you know his new film uh, Brutal, mm-hmm. Brutal Realty. And uh, I'm going to be going to Salem actually later this week, and I'm hoping to catch up with London because he's in town promoting that film as part of the horror festival up there. And um, so yeah, I don't know. It's just the right time of year, and um, London appeared on November Coming Fire, and uh, that was. Uh, you can celebrate the entire catalog of, of Sam Hain, but that particular record for me, I think kind of is the quintessential Sam Hain record. And as you and I were discussing earlier, you know, it's like one of your favorite of Danzig's albums, period, right? Yeah, because, and I love all Sam Hain's material, but that was one where I felt 
even though there's he's always going to have melodies that call back to the misfits just because that's how he sings yeah but it felt like they found their sound and you know and going back and listening to some interviews and stuff they were citing like they were you know it's we call it death, you know, it's commonly death rock or whatever, but they were talking about how they love the Batcave bands. So yeah. Specimen, Alien, Sex Fiend, Bauhaus, Sex Game Children. And you can really hear, I guess almost in the way of like similar to Christian Death, where it's like this really noted guitar playing, but it's punky. Um, and I, I've, that record in particular, it just feels like a full record rather than a collection of songs and, you know, like you think of like initium like archangel it's like such a it's obviously was a misfit song i I believe it was intended for dave vanian to sing on this record just has a even though the songs are super dynamic and they're all different styles it feels really cohesive and it feels like a like a uh an actual journey like a not a theme record but in a sense it it follows follows this idea yeah no totally you know, and Sam Hain being one of the there's like I, I always think of like three bands that were had were all in with the punk scene that were also referencing a lot of that death rock and like sort of goth music, you know what I mean? And obviously you know Sam Hain, T S O L, well the second T S O L record, mm-hmm. you know, Dance With Me. Um, and as you mentioned, Christian Death, which, you know, were all in with the hardcore punk scene, but they were definitely pulling like very generously from bands like uh, Bauhaus and all that sort of stuff too, you know, but uh, Sam Hain always had that unique twist on it, man, because it was so, you can always tell that the same way, I guess, like when you hear Eddie Van Halen play guitar, you know, it's him. Danzig's the same thing. You can never mistake his voice. Whenever you hear his voice, it's like, this is Glenn Danzig singing and all three of these different things he's done. I mean even and even within Danzig itself there's several shades of that band. There's this these different um aspects of the music that he put out, you know, Misfits, Sam Hain, and all the Danzig stuff. Yeah, what I think is interesting about Sam Hain is when I got into them, it felt like they they delivered on the promise of what I thought the Misfits were going to be. You know, like First hearing the Misfits and just how catchy they were and and a little kitschy. We're like, oh, wait, I thought this was supposed to be the scariest band ever. And and I think they are very, uh, there's the fact that they were so poppy worked in their favor to make them kind of eerie because the lyrics are creepy or whatever. But then Dan, uh, Sam Hain, I think it's the, it's the rhythms. I think it's the fact that, and uh, I was listening to an interview with London May where he said Danzig was super pedantic and, and, and just saying, like, these are the way the rhythms are going to go, and they're not intuitive to a, sort of a traditional drummer, or he'd play things like program beats and stuff. And I think that's what it, it generated a totally different mood. And it, and it actually, those kind of like more, I hate the term tribal, but you know, like percussive drumming or whatever. Yeah, it's almost like a killing joke kind of drum thing yeah. going on at times. But when it breaks into something really catchy, it almost makes it catchier. Like the yeah. dynamics are really great, especially in this album. Yeah, Misfits had um, the same appeal to me that the Ramones did, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, when I first heard the Ramones, it was very uh, catchy. There was, like, a reference point to... Because I was also a big fan early in my life because my parents were really into, like, Elvis and Roy Orbison and that kind of thing. And that kind of 50s sound, the, the, the Ramones were taking that and speeding it up 
you know, there was a humorous element to it. And then when I heard Misfits, it was sort of in that same dynamic, you know, it was like, especially the Misfits because of the mm-hmm. vocals very much like on that Roy Orbison Elvis kind of thing. And, um, as, uh, you know, London was talking about in the interview, and we're going to be referencing that a lot, actually, <laughs> I think is that, um, the Sam Hain lyrical content was more brutal in a lot of ways. Like it was more where the misfits were, were singing songs about Astro zombies and, you know, that kind of thing. Horror films, Sam Hain's lyrics were about like murder and, you know, serial killing and eating babies and things like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, I think it, it just, it came together as, like I said, like the, the darker iteration of it, you know, like it's always going to be Glenn Danzig's voice, but he actually, and you seldom see musicians get heavier as they go on. Like the, the progression is always bands, especially bands that start off really heavy. Like they progressively get lighter, you know, for, or at least they did up until maybe the nineties where people suddenly like kicked back in or whatever, or tried to cash in on their old catalog. But I think he's progressively found ways to expand his vision. And, and one thing I, th- I thought was really interesting is that he's, he felt that uh, an interview with him from 1984, I think it was actually with Pusshead. So he's talking about, he actually views Sam Hain as a positive band. Which is pretty interesting, <laughs> you know. It's like he's wow. like, did he did he did he follow up that statement with anything? Yeah, because he he said he's so interested in the occult and all these things and negative feelings, and he doesn't have any trust in people, and and he didn't want to ever have a political view in music, so he wanted to like rather than get on stage and rant about uh, politics like the Dead Kennedys or whatever, he wanted to present this really macabre way as almost like a catharsis for how upset he was. I thought that was really, you know, it could have just been a little freestyling in the interview or whatever, but yeah. it seemed pre- it seemed pretty earnest and, and kind of an interesting point. The, and uh, the other thing that was unexpected, but then it, I'm going to tie it back in, is he was talking about how he really loved Marginal Man at the time, oh, okay. which I thought was an interest, like a band I wouldn't expect him to have an affinity for. And then he also praised Minor Threat, which again, for... Minor Threat, not a happy band, but I wouldn't pick him as a fan. Well, Lyle Presslar but, was yeah, and, but then and, and Brian yeah. Baker too. Brian like Baker, yeah. before, uh, you know, Brian Baker never played live. But that you know, it's kind of it is interesting that the the first iteration of the band was the guitar players from Minor Threat. You know, I wouldn't I, w- I wouldn't pick that. <laughs> no, it's like, and I and I, oft, I oftentimes like. W- try to picture Lyle Presslar with like jet black hair and like a leather right. jacket and stuff like that. You know what I mean? It doesn't really work. Yeah. But, uh, you know, similar to all the classic records episodes, we're just going to run through some of the details about the record. Um, so Sam Hain three November coming fire released in February, 1986 on Glenn Danzig's plan nine records. And, um, this version of the band featured Danzig on vocals, Erie Vaughn on bass, London May on drums, Damian Marshall on guitars, and um, guitar. (laughs) (laughs) And as I mentioned before, the name Samhain is pronounced Samhain to those of you out there who are familiar with Wicca or witchcraft. And, um, you know, it's a celebration of the the, the neo-pagans celebrate it October 31st and November 1st. So hence November coming fire. 
And um, the night calls the summer's end. That's one of the key lyrics of the song by uh, Sam Hain. The total length of the record is 28 minutes, 30 seconds. Track listing it kicks off with Diabolos 88 and My Grip, Mother of Mercy, Birthright, To Walk the Night, Let the Day Begin, Halloween 2, November's Fire, Unbridled, Human Pony Girl. Recorded by Bob Aleka at Real Platinum, Lodi, New Jersey. And that's uh, all the information I have about the record, you know. It was in that murky past, you know what I mean? In the in the '80s underground music scene, you'd show up at some guy's studio. He might have been recording a cover band like uh, two nights prior, mm-hmm. and you just kind of make the best out of it. Yeah, and from from all I could find, there's not much about uh, that studio out there or other work there, just because you know Danzig is funding all this. It's really his business, you know, running the record label, putting out the records himself, and being on the hook for the recording. So. The compromise is you find that guy in, in New Jersey who's going to do it, maybe the night session or whatever, yeah. to get the better deal. Um, it's one thing in this work as a whole, while it's my favorite release, I think it also feels like there was nowhere for Sam Hain to go after this. In the sense of, I could see them repeating this at different levels of success, but it was kind of like a blueprint, like they hit their sound. And then it's kind of like, I guess you kind of look at it as like a, a killing joke or something. Are they going to start to add more keyboards or whatever? But if it almost, in retrospect, it's easy to retrofit it because we know they didn't really do anything much after yeah, that except exactly. for uh, demos or whatnot. But as we'll talk later, the leap into you know what became Danzig, it seemed really logical to me because I don't think, I don't think there's. I couldn't see where it was going to go in a sense other than sort of like repeating the formula in a way. Have you heard uh, any bootlegs of this band like around this period? Yeah. Yeah. The bootlegs sound awesome. Yeah. There's good. There's some really good shit. Yeah. It's, and it's like the band really being at that level of, of proficient musicianship too. you know, Mm -hmm. having good players in the band. And I think in some ways, like though I do love the misfits and, uh, yeah, they're one of my all-time favorite bands. They weren't the best players, really. You know what I mean? Yeah, they were. They were a, a total package of image and mindset, presentation, and the musicianship wasn't at the forefront of it. And I, I think it's it's also worth noting historically how f- big Samhain were. Like they were one of the bigger punk bands of the time. And, yeah. And and I think expanding their palette like they did and, and adding in these other sounds was really smart. You know, I'm, I'm sure they weren't consciously like, oh, now goth people are going to like us. But the draw of that, like it became, you know, cause I know plenty of people who didn't like the Misfits and, and really like Sam Hain. Yeah, likewise. I know people like that, too. And, and their metamorphosis wasn't like Black Flag's change where they just like slammed the door on their old fans. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like there was like an aggressiveness to the way Black Flag changed. You know, when they, when they, everyone wants fast, hardcore songs and they started making these slow, long, Sabbath-y drones, you know, there was like an aggressiveness to that, an alienation factor and the misfits and probably like you were saying, not necessarily by design, but more by aesthetic of what Glenn wanted to accomplish with his music. 
started creating music that actually was more appealing to people in some ways and a, a wider audience appeal, you know? Well, and I, well, I think cause, cause in a lot of ways people are so critical of Danzig and, and it's, because we're in that era where we photograph everything and we make fun of them for walking around with kitty litter, which is like the most normal thing of all time if you own a fucking cat. I have a cat. <laughs> like, or, you know, the him getting punched out, all this stuff, which also he was like 50 years old when he got hit, so whatever. Um, you, you lose track that he's a fan. He's not just a fan of music. He's a fan of so many different things and a genuine fan who's almost like Rollins, how Rollins is a fan of music and it doesn't... It doesn't stop. Uh, his his fandom of things is is very genuine, and I think if you look at his catalog of music, the progressions are because he's diving into other things naturally, and it, and it comes out in a way, you know, I can't speak to maybe the past few Danzig releases, but as far as he legitimately likes this musical mu- mu- movement in the UK and finds a way to infuse it into what he's doing that sounds authentic, rather than a, all of a sudden the, the next thing he does sounds just like Alien Sex Fiend or something. Well, exactly, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Because, and, you know, even now, like today, in uh, 2019, you know, there, the last like, couple of years has been this explosion of like dark wave, like post-punk, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. And those bands sound exactly like other bands that do that style of music from like the late 70s, early 80s, you know, with no characteristic put on it you know sam hayne sounds doesn't sound anything like the bands that are being they're being influenced by they still sound like a very unique amalgamation of all these different things like you can you can definitely tell it it's former misfits there's like a punk thing going on there's like a like a, a goth thing for lack of a better term but there's definitely its own distinct entity it's not you you know you have to kind of dig like as a kid listening to sam hayne for the first time like i heard maybe like around the same time i actually heard bauhaus from seeing the hunger you know that Mm -hmm. uh, that horror film and peter murphy's in the beginning with bauhaus behind a cage you know and all this stuff and that's they're doing bella lugosi's dead and that kind of turned me on to like bauhaus and but i didn't think they sounded the same though I don't think right. Danzig's Samhain and Peter Murphy's Bauhaus sound alike, but I can see that there was a thread connecting those two bands that had to do with maybe a fascination with like the darker things in life, you know? Yeah, and I think the other underrated element is just whether it's synths or chimes or just adding layers to the stuff. Um, and I, and I, that's actually something I thought about in the in the when we cross over into Danzig, in when I'm saying there's not much more they could do, it's like this is a really saturated record. There's a lot of layers. There's a lot going on, and it almost things start to fight each other. Like the one, the one thing of note, and and possibly it's because London was so new in the band. He said that they immediately started recording. The drums are almost non-existent when you listen to it in a sense. Unless, and then other times are really percuss, percussive and noticeable, but a lot, a lot of times it's it's a it's kind of an odd mix, and there's and I think it's just because there's so much it's so swirly sounding, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's um, 
You know, it's just interesting because that is everyone's criticism of the record is like, you know, if the reason oh, I like I would like Sam Hain better if their record sounded different, you know, or they had like I can hear the drums or or there was more definition mm-hmm. between all the instruments, you know. In listening to both of these records, like I wouldn't want to hear this record recorded by Rick Rubin. No, no, definitely <laughs> at not. all. I mean, I mean, as time goes on and, you know, over the course of my lifespan, like I want to hear those records the way they sound. You know mm-hmm. what I mean, I've like accepted the sound of November Coming Fire as being that's what it sounds like. You know, I don't criticize it really. You know, I think that Sam Hain didn't they tour or do you like legs of tours with Metallica during a They I talk so. about I believe, so. I, I believe they did some some shows with them, but they talk about hanging out with them a lot. And then that friendship is like and we'll talk about it in the Danzig thing. It has an imprint on Danzig, which is pretty interesting. But they, and this is their retelling, but they said that they, the Metallica guys met them as fans. Um, and they actually might not have toured because they, Metallica was on tour with Ozzy at the time. Oh, right. So maybe okay. they crossed over yeah. or like in the same town or something. Got it. Yeah. I mean, I could see that because Cliff Burton, it, you know, once again, back to the fandom thing was a fan like of underground punk rock like gbh misfits all that sort of stuff so mm-hmm. it's reasonable to assume that the metallica guys would have been fans of danzig's work you know and sam hain and all that and and you also have the pusshead connection where you know, pusshead doesn't get enough credit for how much he tried to link bands with other bands and link people with other people because he with his through his music writing and just being so passionate when he would talk to people, he just wanted to know what they were about and then immediately try to recommend things. So it might be movies you never saw, other bands that you would be interested in. And I, and, uh, I think he very much like brokered things, even just kind of introducing the U.S. to Japanese hardcore. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, yeah. he has to get credit for that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I forgot about how much, how, how, how much he was the guy to bring that like Death Side and like you know, Gizm and all those uh, mm-hmm. bands over here. Into the U.S. consciousness, you know, gauze, like all those bands. Yeah, and like doing, putting out a pretty influential compilation, just, you know, like as one of the early uh, releases, the Cleanse of Bacteria. Um, I, I like, I like that his artwork is a thread between all these things, but also I, I think it was just, again, it's it goes back into that fandom, like whether he's into toys or, you know, artwork like that. I recommend looking up that Pusshead interview. It's it's like a three-hour interview, and they're just riffing on everything. You know, stuff as simple as, like, what artists do you like? And Danzig just starts listing off comic artists. And oh, then he's yeah. like, oh, do you like this guy? You know, it's just, it's really cool to, it's almost like just hearing two friends, like, their friendship forming or something. The funniest thing about the, you know, talking about comic books is the, the Chris Starr connection with the, um, yeah. with the skull, because that, comic book Christar kind of sucks actually yeah it was terrible it was like a bootleg he-man or something yeah like and it's just but it's funny that that skull probably is the coolest thing about that entire comic book series mm-hmm. and you know even if Danzig hadn't co-opted that skull that skull looked cool you know what I mean yeah but uh I yeah just it was it's... like the outlier because Christar I feel like that was one where they had the toys developed in tandem. Like the comic book was almost legitimizing the toys yeah, like or a something. Thing for, yeah, for selling toys, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that's that's. But that skull has become so iconic, though. You know what I mean? 
Do you have any favorite uh, tracks off of this record? Ones that you are specifically drawn to? There's a, I mean, I think the standout is always Mother of Mercy just because of the tempo. And there's a bunch I wanted to talk about. One thing that I read, which is interesting, is that the riff in the bridge to Un- Unbridled was taken from the cartoon theme song Courageous Cat and Minute Mouse. Wow. So I had to look that up. And Damn. it's that's pretty pretty interesting um a couple things i want to talk about is that the kind of gallop beat that becomes so prevalent in danzig later on i think birthright is a song where you kind of it starts to explore that territory and it almost becomes like a signature part of like his sonic voice uh not my not my favorite track i think to walk the night is pretty incredible track and the vocals, I think it's his best vocal work on the record. Um, and it's one that you can almost hear it reworked as a Danzig track. 100%, yeah. Um, and then another note I have, uh, Let the Day Begin. It's probably the, it's the best uh, song that calls back to the Misfits, but still feels very original and, and of its own. And um, I'm going to throw one. I, yeah, I like the whole record. So, yeah, the whole, the whole album, basically. Awesome. Yeah, the only song yeah. I don't really like is Halloween 2, to be honest. Like, it just felt like it didn't need to happen. Um, but I don't hate it either. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the other one to notice, well, Kiss of Steel. That's a, I like that it's a down... It's built on this downbeat, but then it has this, like, really catchy chorus, like, the the way the, the vocal melodies go, and the chord changes are great. Uh-huh. Um, and then... I think Human Pony Girl is just a weird way to rent, end the record. And I like that it's like kind of like a, an un, it's almost like the ending. We love to debate like the fulfilling ending and people get so mad when a story doesn't have like a tight ending. And I think that was a great way to end that record. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. It's kind of unresolved sort of vibe to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By yeah, far, what are some my, ones you really like? By far, my favorite track on the record is To Walk the Night. And it's just, you know, that style that sort of Roy Orbison trip is like always been ever since I was like a very young boy that Roy Orbison has always been like this thing for me and that's why I love Danzig so much because he's like a the evil Roy Orbison yeah sure and to walk the night when I first heard this record when I first heard this record I was very much into bands like X and you know the gun club and all that sort of stuff Uh uh-huh and there's, you know, you can see there is like a, if you like those bands, you could like Samhain in the same way because they have like this American, like kind of roots thing going on deep, deep underneath everything. And um, To Walk the Night is probably my, I think my, one of my favorite of all time Danzig performances. Mm-hmm. I mean, that song, uh, Sestinus, that's, that's that track by Danzig on the Danzig records and uh, American Nightmare are like, my favorite vocal performances that Glenn has done is in his whole career. You know what I mean? So yeah, definitely to walk the night and then, uh, you know, mother of mercy. I think that's one of everyone, you know, everyone loves that track. Um, so yeah, mother of mercy is definitely another track that I, I, um, I gravitate towards. And I would say those two are probably my two favorites out of the entire record, because if, if we have an unlimited timeline, I can find things about every single record song on this record that is great. You know, that's what I found myself doing. Just, um, going through each track and there's something I like about each of them that 
feels unique to this record. And again, there's elements of the material before it, but it starts to feel like it feels like a it's a very um, sequential record. You should listen to it in sequence, and it feels like I, I like that he it's assembled very thematically and and almost orchestrally. Um, yeah. And then you, of course, as you know, he goes on to record other things and you know record instrumental records. You see that I think it's all components of what he's interested in, and and this is the. I think like the best, um, the best combination of probably everything he's into, like the, you know, the interest in the occult, the sonics, the presentation. Um, I like using the skull almost as like a mascot, which is a you know like an old metal trick, which yeah. I love. <laughs> you know, reinterpreting totally. the logo, and uh, and I like the photography of the record too. I just you know, it's fun to go back and look at the sleeve, and that's another really underrated um, aspect of Glenn Danzig is that because what he's done is so iconic, it feels automatic. Like you see the Apple logo so much, you forget that a human being designed it. Yeah, you no, know? that's a good point. That's an excellent <clears throat> point. Yeah. And just the, the typeface choices and, and, you know, we can go back and forth and say that he appropriated them, but you have to, you know, be, you have to have an eye to know what to appropriate. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. man. And I think, especially coming out of that 80s punk era, late 70s, early 80s, that it was all about appropriation, like clip art, you know, collages and things like that. That mm -hmm. was like very much part of the consciousness of, of that, that cultural sort of movement, you know what I mean? Um, so now, Samhain, an interesting happen, thing happens with Glenn Danzig. Um, it sort of morphs into the Danzig band as a... I just want to cut that out. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Noise in the background, people going buck. <laughs> um, so the way the story goes, Sam Hain played the Ritz on July 14th, 1986, which ended up being their last show. And uh, Rick Rubin allegedly was at the show looking to sign bands for Def, Def Jam Records. And uh, Def Jam, iconic label, brought us LL Cool J, the Beastie Boys, Slayer, and... Um, you know, a slew of other luminaries in uh, out of the New York City sort of area. Um, so he wanted to sign Glenn and put together a quote-unquote supergroup. Mm -hmm. But uh, Glenn, you know, declined, insisting that he wouldn't sign anything without Yuri Vaughn's involvement. Okay? So that's kind of cool. I it think. is really cool that he went to bat for him, sure. Yeah. Uh, the band name was changed to Danzig. Uh, John Christ, who had joined Samhain, also made it over into the new the new dawn of a new band. Um, Christ had relocated to New Jersey to play specifically in Samhain. I believe uh, he was from uh, somewhere in Maryland. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, the, him and London May shared an apartment somewhere in Jersey. And then uh, Christ also he appears on Final Descent, the Samhain record. And then he's on. He's in Danzig until 1995. Rick Rubin invited Chuck Biscuits, who we all know from Black Flag and DOA, to uh, to join the band. And Glenn had indicated that uh, Biscuits would have been his first choice anyway as a new drummer. And they also had uh, 
floated that uh, Phil Taylor from Motorhead was another choice oh, that wow. I read about. Interesting. Um, but obviously Chuck Biscuits was yeah the one. Um, wh- a couple things I wanted to add in before we keep going is that Final Descent was going to be called Samhain Grimm. I just thought that was a cool <laughs> a cool tidbit. And then later Samhain 4. And then never really finished you know, until like 1990. It didn't come out until. The first recording that Danzig would do with like a new, this new era was this, the track You and Me, which appeared on the Less Than Zero soundtrack. And um, that was released as Glenn Danzig and the Power and Fury Orchestra. Yeah, and if you haven't heard that, definitely check that tune out. It's incredible. Actually, that, that soundtrack's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a great soundtrack. It's, it's got, it's like, uh, I mean, for the time it came out, it was pretty innovative too, really. I mean, it had like Slayer on it and doing doing a cover of Indigata DeVita by Iron Butterfly. So Danzig, the debut, was released August 30th, 1988 on Def Jam Records. And uh, it was recorded September 1987 through April 1988 at Atlantic Recording Studios and Chung King Metal in New York City. Mixed at Smoke and Tree Village, the engineer was Dave Bianco, Steve Ett, and Jim Scott. Rick Rubin was the producer. So I, I, dug, into, I dug into this one because obviously I have like my opinion, right? My opinion is that Rick Rubin started to get known for doing this this sort of thing, which was producing rock music like he heard rap music. And, and that's pretty factual. I mean, that's like he's a sure. drums first guy. Yep. So then I started digging into, you know, anything I could pull up that was like quotes or whatever. And uh, a lot of it's just an interview with John Christ talking about how serious Rick Rubin was and how because he owned the label, too, it afforded them the time to do this where he just wanted, number one, the sounds had to be spot on. Okay. And he was telling him to dig into a lot of classic Aerosmith records and would constantly play in the studio back in black just to be like, we have to match the snare to this. And he just had this idea that the sparseness was going to actually benefit because you have, now they have the, the, the lineup and it should be added that Chuck Biscuits becoming a great rock drummer is like few punk drummers transition like that. And that's alone is impressive, but they have this incredible nucleus now and they don't they don't need any bells and whistles so i think in a sense what he did was smart and the most interesting thing i I heard or read uh in this deep dive is that rick rubin's big thing was that obviously you're you record you have to record the drums first but he wanted them isolated so that the band would listen to the drum track and feel like that alone was a song okay and then they'd build off it and i thought that was really like he he was looking at it reductively. They're like, if I was going to remix this, it has to have the right beat. If I was going to add, if I was going to change this in any way. So he was in, and you know, by, by luck, they had a drummer that could handle that type of playing and, and set up those grooves and kind of lay the foundation for the rest of the things to go on it. And the, uh, the other thing that I thought was super interesting is John Christ talked about that, while he describes the record as dry, and I think everyone considers it a really dry record, he's like, if you go back and listen to the isolated tracks, there is delay and reverb on the guitar tracks. But compared to, say, the records of the time, which the biggest records that year were uh, Appetite for Destruction, Hysteria, 
OU812, um, and U2's Rattle and Hum, which I know is a live record, but still, I mean, that's a pretty echoey oh, yeah. uh, sound, yeah, well, you the know? The edge is all about guitar effects. Mm-hmm. So, know? yeah, and, it, you know, when you're, when White Snake's on the radio, like, they are, Danzig's going to sound really dry compared to that. Right. And, uh, yeah, so I think what Rick Rubin does is similar to what Bob Rock does, is simplify things, and he kind of has a model. You know, and that model is based on how he recorded music in his dorm room when he's producing hip hop records. And I think that odd approach worked incredible. I mean, it it's the best sounding thing I think he's done, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, so, I mean, in a way he's more like a project manager than like an engine, like a, I mean, you know, it's like producer, you know, there's a, it's such a, a, a misused term, I think a lot mm-hmm. of times. And he's not behind the controls getting drum sounds and, you know, EQing the snare and all that sort of stuff. Right. He's like a, project manager i guess like kind of like putting forth like what his aesthetic is is going to be and having his engineers kind of match that you know what i mean because like there's three three guys that worked on on the record in addition to uh to to um rick rubin and um so yeah i mean his his approach works and and i think it's like you touched on it's interesting that that biscuits was able to to kind of come correct with that you know because that's not that's not an easy thing to do i imagine especially if the band you're playing in prior to this was Black Flag, which was like not right. at all operating on that same sort of page, you know? Well, there's a, I wish there was more about Chuck Biscuits out there. He's a pretty interesting guy because he was actually uh, a visual artist, too. I don't know if he still is creating art, but the there's an interview with Erie Vaughn. And he talks about how uh, he would... He, you know, they were buying cars or you know, just doing dumb shit. Danzig's buying toys when they start making money, and he spent all his money on art supplies because he worked really big scale, big paintings, big sculptures. How expensive that stuff is, and I thought that was really interesting. And they, they, uh, he was recalling how he got in the band, and he's like, "We don't even, none of us had his number. We didn't even know." <laughs> and he just somehow someone got in touch with him in this, you know, prehistoric world where, you know it was a lot harder to track people down and he had kind of wasn't playing in, in big bands anymore. He was kind of, kind of like a myth almost. And then he just shows up in New York to rehearse with a kick drum pedal and a pack of cigarettes and no bags. <laughs> it's just That's like, funny, man. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And they also mentioned that they would always trip out that he played on a bar stool and how he could, how he could, you know, uh, get the right leverage on his kick drum being up that, High. It's pretty wild if you look at the photos. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that he always sitting really high. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that and this this first Danzig record was actually Danzig's most successful commercial record as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of the the reworking of Mother, right? And like they added the live sounds later on that. Eat was in '93 that EP or whatever. Yeah, 1988. The band broke the Billboard Top 200 at 125. The mother single charted in 1984, Billboard Hot 100 at 43, and uh, yeah, it's crazy to think of all these like charts and stuff like that in these days. You know, there's a couple, a uh, couple other cool things. Uh, James Hetfield being on the record singing backups uncredited is pretty awesome. Hetfield and Hammett sitting in on practices with them until they got solidified. Uh, the lineup, which I thought was really cool, like coming to jam that. with them. Yeah, wow, that I didn't know. And uh, here's here's a funny crossover: is that I think a lot of people know about 
Chungking, aka Chungking House of Metal, that studio, and a lot of records that were recorded there. But in tandem, while Danzig had like these day lockouts at Chungking, and at night, Youth of Today were recording We're Not In This Alone at the night session. And the Sammy from Youth of Today talks about how they would have graffiti wars in the studio. <laughs> so they would write these really positive things, and then Danzig would draw like a bleeding skull over it and make fun of them. And he, he alleges uh, they wrote Wake Up and Live Warlocks, and then he crossed it out and put Your Mother's in Here in Hell with Us, Capo. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty, that's, pretty, that's pretty awesome. But it's funny to think of like this pivotal... Uh, I mean, I think it's actually this isn't a it's hard to call this record a pivotal record because no one could replicate it. It didn't spark anything. It was it was very much an outlier, like nothing on the radio sounded like that. No one had thought to go with this really swampy, rootsy American songbook approach. Then also pulling in Sabbath and uh, Zeppelin. It it wasn't of the time. So, I mean, but the way I really do think it, a lot of it, like the two biggest factors of why it didn't, this record didn't come off disingenuous or, or very retro is that one, it's the heaviness and darkness even of Sabbath or, or, or the darker side of Zeppelin through this very Americana lens. As knowing Danzig's like a disciple of Roy Orbison, when you play Roy Orbison songs, they're, they're so not the way he writes a song is so not intuitive to me. It's they're so beautiful. There's just such like his chord changes. Like my mind doesn't work like that. Sure. You know? And, uh, even though it's so simple and I think that was always with Danzig and this was kind of the moment for that to come out. And that's why it sounded natural. And I mean, we should go back and talk about, you know, first time hearing it. Oh yeah. You know, I I think that's really, cause that was a big moment. I think. Definitely, man. And the other thing too with Danzig is that it, it is a big reference to like like Howlin' Wolf and stuff like mm-hmm. that too. You know, what I mean, there, there's like an Albert King cover, The Hunters, on right. this record, and that's like it's it's um digging deep into that darkness of of that old blues, like that blues, you know, because there's always like the tales of like you know like the devil and all this sort of stuff that comes in with like you know like this voodoo Satan kind of thing that comes out of the blues and. And it, it has a very heavy impact on the way Danzig, the band, sounds, I think. You know? mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, let's, let's get into like what our f- first impressions were of this whole thing, man, the first time you heard this record. Yeah, this is... It, it's funny. I, I look back on stuff, and, and I'm like, did I really anticipate that? Like, it's, it's tough to parse it out and think, like, am I making this up? But I do remember anticipating that record. Because number one, like I was reading a lot of metal mags at the time too, and the ad was so powerful. Yeah, it was just like, again, even the ad, the the design was reductive. They did no type, like, because the original version didn't even say Danzig. They actually had to put that on later. They were just trying to emulate Zeppelin. They've admitted it, you know. And then I actually thought it was interesting that they said uh, Lucifuge was just referencing a Doors record cover too. Yeah, so it's, well, a, that's really cool. Yeah, sure. yeah it's really cool. I can see that. But um, yeah, that was 
it, it would it would be hard even in an era like a non-digital era where and and you have to understand that other than headbangers ball you're not hearing much about metal in any form of media no other you, it's print mags fanzines and uh you know a late night show on MTV once a week so even then the fact that this was the next thing he was working on was a big deal and i i remember going and getting it 100% not what i expected at all and going through the going through the whole record and having an anxiety of what the next song was going to be cuz you know i was like fuck that was well, I didn't expect that shit. What's the next thing? And the way it's sequenced, it just delivers over and over. And like, it almost feels like a live set. And they've said that they they just used to boombox record their rehearsals. And their big thing is that they wanted it to just sound like a really good rehearsal. I, I get and, down and, with that, yeah. And I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to say I understood it. Like, I, I, me and my friend got it on the same day. And then the next, the next day at school... We're talking about it and he's like it's like a swamp rock record and i'm like I, yeah i don't even really know what that like i guess i know what that means i'm young <laughs> you know yeah. but uh and i was like well, do you like it he's like I don't, I don't know it's like it's rock and roll yeah you it's, know it's a rock and roll album basically yeah i um it wasn't at all what i expected it to sound like either because it was like you know coming out of listening to sam hain it was like i expected that or maybe knowing that it was on a big label I thought mm -hmm. maybe it would be like slick produced, you know, which it wasn't either that, you know, there was no real slick production on it. No, not at all. <laughs> I thought it would sound maybe like more thrash, you know, because it was the late, you know, the, the 88 was like, that was like what was happening, you know, like more mm -hmm. like speed metal kind of thing or whatever. And I knew that Metallica were huge fans of what he was doing. I thought maybe like, oh, well, you know, maybe this Danzig thing is going to be more like that. And then when I put the record on, I was like, the guitar tones, like everything were completely not what I expected. Like I thought yeah. I was going to have that super compressed, like, you know, uh, Rasmussen style Metallica thing going on or Slayer or something like that. You know, and it just, and also the, the imagery was so evil, you know, I was like, it's black and white, you know. And, um, and then I was like, yeah, this is not at all what I expected it to be. And I wasn't sure if I liked it either. Yeah. <laughs> and it took me a while to like get get down with it because um it 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 just was a surprise, but it eventually entered into being like one of my favorite albums. This and Lucifuge are my their masterpieces in my opinion, you know. Yeah, I think it, also I'm still like when I'm getting into this record, I'm still like on one one part of me is looking for the heaviest shit ever. <laughs> still i'm like yeah i'm like oh there's because even the progression of music like in 1988 like there still are things to come that are heavier than what's before so like there's one part of me that's that there's one part of me that's uh starting to get into like all these crossover bands i'm also into kind of like the starter kit of like uh english music you know like yeah. the the smiths or whatever yep. and uh the cure and and i really like the cult yeah. And so I think I just recognized what like this approach, like, you know, from hearing electric, you know, like I get, I get the idea of just taking it back to like 
this is what a rock record sounds like. I just wasn't looking for a rock. Like I didn't yeah. like rock and roll at that time. Like, I as, you. you know, like I liked, I liked older rock and roll, but I, it wasn't like the thing that I have my, I have my 20 bucks from mowing lawns and I'm not going to go buy a fucking, uh, a Van Halen. Like I'm not buying OU812 or whatever <laughs> came out that year, you know? Um, I'm going to buy, you know, the black flag record I don't have or fucking AF or something. And I think I even, I think I got this record through a tape club. I'm pretty sure, you know, where it's like you do that scam where you like send in a penny and you get 12 tapes and then they send you another one for like $28 and you got to cancel it or something yeah, like. Exactly. That that's, I remember that scam. <laughs> I want to say I bought this at strawberries, man. You oh, right on. In, I think there was one at Kenmore square. Yeah. Cause I was, I was at BU at the time. And I want to say that I, I bought this record at Strawberries. I didn't even buy it like at Newberry Comics or Tower or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, like one of the more culturally cool like spots. Which is crazy to think that that record was available there, really. Yeah. You know. I mean, it was, it did have some hype behind it. And I think, like, what stood out to me is how different they were when they're in interviews or their videos or they had like tour videos out. And they were very much like, they just look like shit bags. Yeah. It was kind of awesome. Like there was a way to not wear a shirt where you're trying to look sexy and cool. And like, I, I don't, it probably wasn't intentional, but they just look like bad people. Yeah, definitely. Like man. really bad people. Yeah. John Christ, especially mm -hmm. John Christ looked particularly sketchy. I think in that band, um, there was also the home video VHS tape. Mm -hmm. And that really was what, like sunk in, like what the band was about. Once I saw that, you know, with like Glenn and his book collection about werewolves and, you know, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the lots, the edited chapters of the Bible and all that. Like, yeah. And I was like, all right, cool. Now I get it. Now this guy's like into like, you know, really macabre stuff, which I assumed he would be. Mm -hmm. But that video kind of contextualized the band in a way that made me think that, okay, cool. This is like, just like more like a different aspect of who this guy is. And, um, not so much like, oh, they're lightening up. Because I think that was the one thing I forgot to mention about is when I first heard the record, I was like, are they lightening up, man? Are they doing this thing like mm -hmm. to be like more commercial or something like that? And I had my doubts about it. But after watching the, the, the home video and getting into the what the band was behind, like what their deal was, I was like, oh, yeah, this is like they're not lightening up at all. Yeah. They're, they're getting deeper into like whatever this thing is. you know Well, yeah, because also as you go through that record, it's a, it's moody. And then like, I think possessions are a really interesting track that yeah. that one seems unexpected. That's almost more like a Sam Hain song or something. Yep. Um, it's not like they, they didn't follow the formula of like, we got like the feel good rocker about Saturday night. Then we got another rocker. Then we got the power ballad. Like it, what it, you, cause there was that formula at the time of like how they broke bands. And also there was a lot of, uh, like scammy rock bands from old punk dudes. Yes. And like, you know, like, like junkyard, like junkyard or like, <laughs> yeah. um, there's a, I mean, it's, there's a bunch of like those very like LA, like we're going to give it a shot bands, you yep. know? And this didn't come off like this. Like it really did feel. And, and I do think a lot of it is just the sound and presentation. And you can look back on it now and it's like, sure. Some of the stuff's hokey, like, Glenn not in a shirt talking about his book collection and like being, I mean, it is, 
it is funny. Like he has to even look at that and be like, all right, that was a little over the top, but it's awesome. Like you need that folklore. And you got to understand he's from New Jersey too. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's kind of like, like the tri-state area dudes out there probably understand what I'm talking about. It's like, yeah, he's like a very much like a New Jersey kind of guy. Well, you know, the other place he lived early growing up, Revere. No way, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. It all makes total For sense. A, yeah, short amount of time as a kid. I thought that was a... That's the good part of the internet when you find out little wow. things like that. Yeah. Revere is like the, the Keensburg, New Jersey of Massachusetts. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So yeah, now it all t- makes total sense. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so it's... We talked about it a little bit. What, what are some other tracks that really uh, jump out at you as being classics on this one? Um... End of time. I mean, the whole thing. I mean, it's like the song is Twisted Cane. That's your introduction to the band. It's like you want to play that riff. You know, like there's certain riffs, like when you're younger or whatever, like you hear Crazy Train, you want to play, you know, like there's just something very like seductive about those sound. Like you want to learn how to replicate it. Um, I love, I love Possession a lot. evil thing i don't know it's it's hard because like i feel like um like saying what's your favorite kid like you're gonna neglect the other kids <laughs> you know yeah. it's like it's just am i deemed i don't know like i it's hard for me to dig into them almost because because it, it feels like a thing like it almost feels like there's no spaces between the songs yeah, for me, it's uh, Not Out of This World, I think, is awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, She Rides has a special place for me, man, because the song is like, uh, you know, uh, about Lilith, you know, the first vampire, you know. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> like that stuff's really cool. I, like, I, I enjoy that connection with it, you know. Well, that's also the elephant in the room that we're not talking about is like these guys, well, not, not, uh, not Danzig as a band, but Danzig, the person, like, he doesn't party, he doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, he's a... Or he'd stop, you know, he has periods where he stops drinking. And he's always had this, uh, so he's not into the decadence of rock and roll in that way. But he's into, like, he's still, like, it's a very, it's a very sexual band. Yeah, definitely. You know, like, for sure. The, like, every opportunity for a video is like, it's got girls in it. He's always singing about girls. He was stoked when they when he heard dancing in a strip club. Like he had, he checked that <laughs> off his list, you know. And it's like that time in the world. I get it, you know. Like that's always like that's the aspect that it's maybe it, it's just so a part of what he does, you know. And that and, and almost that makes it unique too because it's unique to him that it's not just. Uh, I'm not just trying to be the scariest guy in the room all the time. There's like this human lusty weird side, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I've never met Danzig, but we've got friends that have had interactions with him. Um, Some of them have been, they've toured with him and some of them have been, they ran into him at a show in Jersey. Like, cause you know, every year, I don't know if he still does it, but there's a, a Danzig show around the Christmas holiday. Mm -hmm. And uh, a friend of mine ran into him there and, and, had a very pleasant interaction with him. You know, you hear all kinds of things about people. I think there's also how he interacts with a fan is different. Like if you, any interview he does, he's this smirky, I got to give wacky contrarian answers. Like it's part of his thing. And, and I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, cause I don't, I think a lot of times musicians, 
even like deep into their career don't have a lot to say. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's like you spend so much time making music. Everything doesn't have to sound like an art project, you know, but he's, he's a persona and he's, he's, he's very uh, unrelenting and, and he's not going to bend on anything. It, It also makes me wonder knowing that they weren't into metal or even rock other than John Christ, like they've talked about this, how the fuck they made this record. Like what, like what, what made that pivot, you know? And, and I, maybe it was the fact that they all got along doing that lesson zero soundtrack song and it was fulfilling, but it's such a, it's such a reductive leap. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, thanks for uh, coming out and doing this, man. Yeah, um, of course. That's, one of my two of my favorite records of all time and uh you oftentimes as usual have um added a very uh interesting perspective on this stuff yeah well it's cool i don't know my goal for for these things is is that they don't exist in a vacuum they're not on a playlist and when knowing a little more about like the time frame and and the reaction you know it was this record specifically, like it was jarring to hear it the first time. And that's really fucking cool because you don't see a lot of, uh, a lot of music is just almost like you had said before. It's just like a being other sounds and rarely does someone make a pivot like this. So I think both of these records are pretty, when you, when you think about how your introduction to Glenn Danzig, like his early material to have a super dark goth record and a dark, creepy rock record, that are both perfect in my opinion. It's pretty, it's a pretty impressive uh, milestones. Oh, hell yeah, totally. Well, everyone enjoy the uh, spooky Halloween season and um, we'll see you guys next time. episode of metal matters a gimme radio weekly podcast tune in next week and see what we have in store for you the show is available on all streaming platforms apple Podcasts, itunes spotify etc also be sure to check out gimme radio streaming on the web ios or android for one of the best metal communities exclusive merch interviews with artists and so much more i'll catch you guys next week take care no, no, no.